Good morning. Let's open to Ephesians chapter 3, where I'd like to begin by reading to you from starting in the 14th verse. Ephesians 3:14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. As this section begins, Paul begins by expressing a prayer, a prayer that he prays for the people of God, a prayer that expresses what is needful to us from God. And he begins it by saying, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There was a time when Jesus told a parable, and as he did in some of his parables, he represented God's relationship to people as a family relationship. In this parable, Jesus tells there's a father that has two sons, and this is quite a famous parable, sometimes known by the name of the younger son, who's, who's called a prodigal, because this younger son goes to his father in the parable, and he says to his father, Father, give me my inheritance. He wants his inheritance now. And his father gives it to him, and the son takes it, and he goes into a far country, and it says he squanders that inheritance with riotous living. Uh, very clearly, Jesus is representing in this story that this, this younger son is uh, not, a, not loving towards his father, not appreciative towards his father. He's not living in accordance with the teachings of his father. And he goes and he just wastes away his inheritance in a life of sin. But it comes to pass in due time that this son uh, comes to grieve his situation and what befalls him. And he comes back to his father and his father sees him a long way off. And when he sees his son, he runs to him. He wraps his arms around him and he receives him with joy and with an embrace. And he kisses him and he receives him back and he celebrates the return of his son. And in, in representing things this way, Jesus represents to us that God's relationship to his people is a family relationship. And it's one of a father who is delighted to see his uh, son who has uh, squandered things in a life of sin returning back to him. And he says, my son who is dead is alive again. 
And he receives him with with joy, just like any of you who are parents. If one of your children wandered away and and rejected you and rejected your teaching and they they went off the path, but then they came back repentant, how joyful you would be because you have a love for your children, a love that is uh, transcending what they do. And even when they do wrong, they can't break that kind of unconditional love that you have for your children. And so it is, God is represented to us as a father. God is our father. And when we are taught about prayer in the Bible, that is often the first thing that is at the forefront of the teaching about how we are to pray. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, it was similar in that they began the prayer, our father, who art in heaven, to recognize that our uh, coming to God, we come to God as a father, as his children, which is itself something that's amazing. But he also begins this, he says, for this cause. And in any time we begin a section of scripture with a statement like for this cause, then we certainly have to ask for what cause? What is behind what is being taking place here? And we can go back and we go all the way back to the beginning of chapter three. And we see that this is a continuation of a thought that Paul began uh, way back at the beginning of this chapter when he said, for this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to talk about God's revelation to him and the mystery of the gospel. Uh, which, which I had the privilege to preach about the last time I was here. But uh, we see that even chapter 3 begins with, for this cause. So what is the cause? What is the motivation of this prayer? What is the foundation on which this prayer is? Well, it's, in short, it's everything that has come before in the first two chapters of Ephesians. So what do they talk about? Well, remember, this is writing to believers, Jew and Gentile. And it's writing to them back in chapter one about how God's purpose, God's eternal purpose from before the foundation of the world was to bring about their salvation and the giving to them of all spiritual blessings. That, that's one of the ways that this letter begins in verse three of chapter one. Blessed be the God And Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Blessed be the God. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And then as you go on and read chapter 1 and chapter 2, you see just unfolding one thing after the next. The spiritual blessings that God has blessed us with. Don't take them for granted. Don't take them lightly, but consider how valuable the treasures that God has given to his people are. How he predestinated us to be conformed to the image of his son. How he adopted us into his family. How when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive in Jesus Christ. How the Gentiles, uh, out of all the nations of the world, were taken... And the things that divided them off from the people of God were broken down by the work of Christ. And they were united together with God's people, Israel, and made 
uh, one body and made what, as chapter 2 wraps up, a, um, an abode of God, a habitation of God through the Spirit as it describes Verse 21 and 22 of chapter 2. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. So we have adoption into God's family. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We have union with God. We have, in fact, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are builded together as a people a habitation of God through the Spirit. And this includes not just the descendants of Abraham according to the flesh, not just the nation of Israel, but in fact God has now, by this time that this is written, He has incorporated back into His people uh, people from every nation of the world and made them into one family. As uh, Sister Tracy brought up in the prayer request, what a blessing it is to be part of a family. And when we're part of a family of God, we are participating in something that is of a spiritual and a heavenly origin. Because we have been adopted into God's family. We have been made his children in spite of, not because of what we inherently Deserve, But in spite of our sin, God has saved us, adopted us into his family, and made us part of that family. That family of which we'll see more. But he says, for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father. So we see that all of this consideration of what God has done for you is motivating him to pray. And it's motivating him to pray really for, I think, at least two reasons. One is a recognition of this calling and the great need that they have, that they need, that you need, that we need of God's strength, his power, his guidance and his wisdom to equip us for the calling that we have and to enable us to face the challenges that we will face the trials, the difficulties, the sorrows, the temptations, and the testings of this life, we need the strength and the power of God to be at work to be able to face those things. So the stakes are very high. The need is very great. And that is a motivation to prayer, to God, to recognize the only source of the strength that we need comes from our Heavenly Father, comes from God. And then there's also another side to the motivation to pray. The motivation to pray is that the God to whom we are praying is a God who delights to pour out an abundance of spiritual blessings upon his people. A God, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go to somebody who you thought cared nothing about you and had nothing to give you and, and wasn't going to give anything to you. You wouldn't be motivated to go to that person to ask for things in your time of need. But if you knew that there was somebody, uh, you know, and children do this all the time with their parents. When they look at their parents, a, a, a child will look at their parents and they'll see somebody that is uh, strong, 
somebody that is wise, somebody that has means and resources, and somebody that cares deeply about them and loves them. If this child has a loving parent who's bigger than them, richer than them, stronger than them, uh, has more means than them, smarter than them, and they have a need, they don't hesitate to fly to that parent in their time of need and to ask for what they want. Because they know that their mom, their dad, cares about them, hopefully, and will give them what they need. And so if we, if we begin to recognize, I think if we recognize even a fraction of the abundance of love that God has for us, then we will, we, will, we will not be able to hold back from flying to God to bring him uh, our prayers, our needs, our thanksgiving, all of those things. And so Paul just overflows with, with praise to God, but also prayer for the needs of the people. He says, for this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So what are we considering here this morning in this passage that we're reading? Well, we have a, we have a model of prayer. So we have, we have some things that will help us in our prayers. We have also things taught us about who God is. And we have a reminder of something that is so important for us to understand and to know deeply in our soul, and that is the love of God. To know something that you can't even wrap your mind around, your mind cannot understand it, we cannot understand it, but we need to know it, to know it in our bones, to know it in our heart, and that's the love of God. And then also see how all these things are working together to enable us for our calling as the church of Jesus Christ, which is to glorify God in the world throughout all ages, to glorify the name of Jesus Christ, to be his people in this world, to manifest his amazing glory. And that is what we have been called to do. That is the treasure that we have been entrusted with. That we would proclaim his word, proclaim his name in this world. So that's, what, that's something we're seeing here in this passage. He bows his knees to the Father. He says, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. When I see this heaven and earth, I'm reminded back to chapter 1, where we have what might in some ways be a theme of the entire letter. And that's verse 110, where it says that... God's purpose is that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that when, when God's plan comes to its ultimate culmination, God is going to do something amazing. He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and in earth, both which are in, in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. God's purpose to unite heavenly things, earthly things together in Christ. 
is in fact being accomplished in the work of Jesus Christ, in his, in his coming. This is his purpose, to unite the heavenly and the earthly together. And we've, we've seen some of that in the things that we've read. Think about the church as being the temple of, of the Holy Spirit, God's presence here. It's not a building anymore. It's not a building in, in a particular place in, in Jerusalem, as majestic as that was. And the, and the presence of God came into it. But it is, in fact, a, an organic institution that God has created, a family made up of living stones built together as a place where God's spirit is now pleased to dwell. So heavenly things and earthly things have been united together in, in God's purpose and his plan. But, but this, coming back to verse 315, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Well, there's somewhat of a play on words here, because in Greek, the word for father and the word for family, pater and patria, are very similar. They're very related here. So there's somewhat of a play on words, but he's saying that the whole existence of a family, a heavenly and earthly family, derives from the father. Without the father, there is no family. But with the father, there is a family that is in fact a union of heavenly and earthly. And we can think of this as both people that are on earth and people that are in heaven. But I think it, and it includes that, but I think it includes even more than that. Because we're told in a few places in the, in the Bible that when God created things, when he created the world, God made human beings, but God also made uh, another type of being. Uh, they're described, for example, or referenced, for example, in the book of Job, in a very poetic passage. It has a poetic description of the creation. But in Job 38, one of the times the Lord speaks to Job, he calls Job's attention to the wisdom and power of God that were at work in the creation of the world. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. Job is an amazing book. It's an amazing uh, it deals, it deals with the idea of justice. It deals with the idea of, um, of the events that happen to us here in this life. And it is filled with these long speeches where in many of them, people, Job's friends in particular, are uh, going on and on with their opinions about why things are happening the way that they are their attempt to judge and to understand what's happening. And it, as it comes towards the end, God confronts it. And this is pretty amazing. Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? We ought to be careful about uh, giving our opinions. We ought to be careful about how uh, much we think that we have wisdom and we have understanding of things and recognize that true wisdom has to come from God. And if we speak the wisdom of God, if we speak wisdom that he has revealed to us 
through his word, then we are on solid ground. We're on a firm foundation. But God confronts them and he says they're darkening counsel with words without knowledge. He goes on, he says, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or what hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who hath laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who has shut up the sea with doors when it break forth as if it had issued out of the womb? When I made the cloud, the garment thereof, in thick darkness, a swaddling band for it, and break up for it my decreed place and set bars and doors, and said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further, and here shall thy proud waves be stayed. And God is talking about how he laid the foundations of the earth. He's talking about how he set the boundaries of the seas. And he uses the analogy of, of uh, as if he put bars and doors on the edges of the seas and uh, decided exactly where they were going to be and, and did his wisdom. But in the midst of that, he also says that when he was laying the foundations of the earth, the sons of God were shouting for joy. And uh, so, you know, we know that God has created other beings, spiritual beings. We often refer to them as angels. But angels, uh, the word angel is not really so much a description of what something is, but it is a description of what they're doing. It's like a job title. Angel means a messenger. But, but what are these angels? Well, they are beings of a spiritual nature that God has created that dwell with God in the heavenly realm. So, for example, when Jesus describes how God uh, is delighted when sinners repent and God is delighted to receive repentant sinners back to himself, one of the ways he describes it is he says, there's rejoicing in heaven in the presence of the angels. So we see that when God is rejoicing, he's rejoicing. He's not by himself. He's surrounded by angels. In fact, almost every scene you see where the presence of God is uh, revealed in some way, God is surrounded by a great host, a great multitude. He's surrounded by throne guardians, cherubs, and seraphim that are surrounding him. See that God has created spiritual beings. Sometimes in the Bible, uh, they're referred to as the sons of God. That's important because that shows what? A family relationship. We see that God has a family, angels, people. And that is an incredible thing that we human beings have been adopted into God's family. We are created by his hand. We are created by his word, by his wisdom. And uh, so we are, we, are, you, we are entering before him as we come before him in prayer in that family relationship. And it is a family relationship founded upon the love of God. So let's consider that for a moment. He prays that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory 
to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Well, as as I was pointing out before, you wouldn't go to somebody that uh, had nothing available to help you and ask them to, to help you. You would go to somebody who had the means to do so. And Paul here, when he prays, he prays that God would grant according to the riches of his glory, according to the riches of his glory. Now, let me use another analogy. Let's imagine that one Sunday uh, you're all in here and you're worshiping and um, a a very rich, um, wealthy man comes in and, uh, you know, he has a billion dollars. And he comes in and he and he comes into worship and he uh, wants to give a gift to the church. And as he's walking out, he sees the plate and he uh, pulls a twenty dollar bill out of his wallet and he puts the twenty dollar bill in the plate. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no I have no criticism of him. Um, he gave twenty dollars out of his abundant riches. But I use that analogy to say he did not give according to his abundant riches. He gave out of his riches, but he did not give according to his riches. Uh, So I use that analogy just to say that when we pray to God to give according to the riches of his glory, consider what's being asked here, that the blessings that God pours out would be in a proportion to, would be along the lines of, would be according to the likeness of the abundant riches that God has. That is an incredible thing to ask for and to ask for believing that it will be received. And he is praying, believing that it will be received because make no mistake, God gives to his people in accordance with the abundance of his riches, according to the riches of his glory. And then what he prays for, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. It says that the outward man, this flesh and blood existence, our bodies, our brains, our minds, it says that the outward man is perishing. But... The inward man is renewed day by day. You know, no matter no matter what, no matter how much we take care of our earthly existence, take care of our bodies, uh, keep in good shape, eat healthfully, all those things, exercise, all those things are good. Uh, But no matter how well we do with that, it, it might improve the quality of our life, lengthen our life. But eventually our outward man is perishing. But we have a spiritual existence which cannot fade away, which cannot be taken away by time or decay because it is upheld by the power of God. But we stand in need every day to be strengthened by the power, the might of God. That's what we need more than anything else. More than anything. You know, we might think, uh, I don't have time to pray. I'm too busy. I have too many things I have to do. 
Well, that kind of thinking, if we think that way, and, and any of us could fall into that any time, we are trusting to our own abilities or we're trusting to earthly things and not recognizing that what we need more than anything else is to be strengthened by the strength of God, to be strengthened with his might in the inner man. Because if we are upheld in the spirit, then we can endure, we can overcome anything that this world has to throw at us. That Christ, he says, may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. Think about rooted and grounded. This is like the image of a tree. And I'm reminded of Psalm 1, where it says... uh, You know, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law did he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters. His leaf won't wither. It won't fade. It it speaks about a secure setting. And what do the roots of a tree do? Well, they do at least two things. One, the roots of that tree, they go down into the ground and they form a solid and a firm foundation for that tree. And like you, some of you have seen around here in the last week, even with this storm, trees being just uh, plucked up by their roots. Uh, and, and the only thing with winds that are that fierce and rains that are coming down that hard and all these things, the only thing that's uh, keeping all of the trees from being knocked over by those winds is that they have roots that dig down into the ground and they hold them solidly in place. So the rains can beat against them and the winds can beat against them. And more often than not, they stand in the midst of the storm. And that's how we need to be in this storm of life. When the rains and the winds come, those rains and winds, the temptations that we face, the uh, confrontations that we have with evil in this world or, or the temptation in our own hearts, our own lust to be turned aside to sin. We need to be in a solid foundation. And that foundation is that our roots need to plunge down into the soil of God's love and be so solidly fixed there that no matter what beats against us, we can stand in the midst of it. We can stand against the wiles of the devil. We can stand against the evil of this world. We can stand against the temptations of our own heart and our own lusts that seek to turn us aside and bring us to destruction if our roots are grounded in the love of God. Well, roots also serve another very important purpose. The roots are part of the means that the nourishment from the soil is drawn up into the tree in order to feed the tree so that it can be nourished, so that it can grow, so that it can stay alive, so that it can thrive. And likewise, we need the same thing with the love of God, the water by which he nourishes our thirsty souls, the the nutrients of his love to enable us to grow 
spiritually. Enable us to be full of life and energy and vibrancy for the kingdom of God and for his righteousness. The only way that we're going to have that spiritual vibrancy is by being rooted in the love of God. So may our our roots spiritually go down deep into the love of God. And so he prays. He prays that they would be able to comprehend with all saints because this is not an individualistic journey that we're on. As we've seen, we're part of a family. We are taught by Jesus to pray, our Father. And yes, you can pray, my Father, to God. You can, but we, but we also, we pray together. We unite together with one another in our prayers as well. Even if you're alone when you're doing the praying, the things you're praying for and the purpose to which you are praying, you are united together with the family of God in those prayers. So you're not alone in this journey, but you are part of a great family, a family in heaven and earth, a family with heavenly and earthly things united together in Christ. And uh, he He prays that we would be able to comprehend the dimensions of God's plan for us, of his purpose for us, and to be able to know the love of Christ. And how how can you possibly know something that passeth knowledge? How can you know something that passeth? It almost doesn't make sense, except that God reveals by his spirit to us things that we cannot otherwise understand. Like when, when it says somewhere else, I hath not seen nor ear hath heard the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them to us by his spirit. See, God reveals to his people by his spirit things that we could not otherwise understand. Things that surpass our our understanding. Um, And one of those things, most important of those things, is the love of God. Is the love of Jesus Christ. And how has God perhaps most clearly and most evidently manifested that love to us? Well, it says it this way. God has manifested his love to us in that well, we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He, he reveals his love most strikingly in the fact that he laid down his life for us. And not just laid down his life for us when we deserved it or when we were desirable, but in the depth of our sin and unrighteousness, God dies for us comes, takes on flesh, suffers and dies, lays down his life for us. That is love. Now think about it for a moment. Think about, are there people in your life, family, children, friends, brothers, sisters, maybe, there there are probably people in your life who if you were given the opportunity, you were given the chance to lay down your life for them, to die for them. Let's say a situation came up and you could give your life 
in order to save theirs? Are there people to whom you would do for the, that for? And probably there are. Hopefully there are. Um, many parents, I believe, would do that for their children, given the situation. Not that this comes up in a regular basis, but, but if, you, if you had to, if you had to, you would. You would lay down your life for those. Maybe your dearest friend, your spouse. But... Um, would you do it for a stranger? Would you do it for a stranger who wasn't, who you knew? Maybe you don't know much about this person, you don't know this person, but the one thing you do know, they're not a very good person. They're, it's a bad guy. Uh, probably not. I don't think most of us would if we're honest with ourselves. Uh, and that's, and that's uh, exactly what the Bible says. It says we possibly might die for a righteous person. And I would say you possibly, maybe even probably might lay down your life for someone near and dear to you. But you probably wouldn't die for a bad person that you didn't know, that you didn't you know, have any dealings with. Most of us probably wouldn't. That would take a great act of love. But God, but God commendeth his love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, Christ died for us when we in our minds were still in a state of enmity against him. He died for his enemies. He died for people who in their sinful hearts hated him. He died for Saul of Tarsus, who sought to kill his followers. He died for people like that. That is the most striking demonstration of the love that God has for us. And God's love is manifested not just in that, but then all across everything that he does for our good and for our lives. But it's something that even being told that, it doesn't always sink in to as deep as it needs to be to really get hold of your life, to know the love of Christ. And so that's where prayer comes in. That's why he prays. God, they've heard the message. They've heard the gospel preached maybe many times that declares the love of God. But God... Help them to really understand it deep in their souls. And that's what we need as well. God, help us. Help me, help you to understand deep in our souls the love of God, which passes knowledge, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. That our lives, our thoughts, our actions, our words, Everything might just be overflowing with the life of God in us. Because that is really, uh, that is really the essence of our calling in this world. To live out the life of Christ in this world to manifest his glory. Unto him it ends be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages world without end. May the glory of God in Jesus Christ be ever manifested by us. And as he prays, he also um, 
reminds us to whom we're praying. It says, verse 20, Now unto him that is able. God is able. Now we have been, we've been united together in prayer for our friends that are in danger, that are in hurt. And we, and we pray to God, trusting that he is able to hear us and to answer us. He is able. And he is able to do exceeding, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. God's power, his incredible power is at work in his people. We, we stand in need of that power every day. And he is able to answer our prayers. He hears us. He certainly hears us. He is willing to answer them. But not only that, but we might uh, imagine our most, um, the most generous that he could possibly be. And his ability to answer us is so far beyond what you can ask or even what you can imagine or think. And so unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen.